0: You're listening to Riders on a New England stage with Joe Hill. This program originally aired in 2016.
1: All right, let's have a bit of the story. An incurable spore called dragon scale has raced through the nation, an unlikely infection that kills by spontaneous combustion. As the plague takes hold, hospitals burn and neighborhoods go up in smoke. The charred dead are everywhere. Infected and pregnant, nurse Harper Willows has found refuge in Camp Wyndham where a small community of the contaminated have learned how to suppress the disease. When they all sing together, or share in some other happy group experience, the dragon scale on their bodies lights up, glows like fluorescent paint, and delivers a sort of natural high. No one in this place of shelter burns to death. But in the darkest days of February, Wyndham has become a grim, toxic place. The elected head of camp, Mother Carol, is increasingly paranoid, haunted by threats real and imaginary. She has even come to fear John Rookwood, the fireman, an almost legendary hero to the ill. Those who cross Mother Carol are pressured to carry a stone in their mouths as a form of penance. Harper herself has shown a flagrant disregard for Carol's authority, but has refused to properly atone. In the scene that follows, she has just left a meeting with Carol where she made it clear she views the new punishments as cruel and unhealthy. Convinced things are going bad, Harper is now on her way to see John to seek his advice and to warn him of the danger growing around them. Harper followed a barely discernible path beneath an obscure sky whichever way she turned her face snow blew into it the wind gusted a tree cracked boards wobbled and flexed underfoot requiring her to proceed slowly to keep her balance when the house of the black star was out of sight behind her she held up in the frozen pine scented dark in another 200 steps she would cross the trail that wound down through the trees to the shingle and the dock. She could be across the water to the fireman's island in ten minutes, tell him what Carol had decided, warn him that... A child ran through the pines to her right, a flickering shadow shape, and she turned her head to look and saw that it wasn't a child at all, only a skein of snow fleeing through the trees. Whack! A snowball hit her in the side of her head, but she didn't know it until she had gone another two steps. It took that long to register. She was not aware of reeling to one side or her right knee giving out under her until she found herself kneeling in the snow. Harper saw a blur of motion from the corner of her eye and raised an elbow in time to block the next snowball. The impact deadened her arm, a ringing shock jolted from elbow to hand. The snowball shattered the moment it struck her. The speckled white stone that had been packed in its center rolled out onto the snow in front of her. Girl shapes jumped from behind trees on either side of her, breathless with laughter. Harper thought she saw a snowball sailing at her stomach and dropped her arms to cover it, and it hit the side of her neck instead, a sharp sting followed by numbness. They circled. The water in her eyes wanted to turn to ice, freeze there, The faces surrounding her were stiff and white and inexpressive, as if she were being attacked by department store mannequins. One of them charged at her back and shoved her. She toppled onto her side. Please be careful, she said. I'm pregnant. I'm not fighting you. Whitewash, whitewash, sang someone who sounded horribly like 11-year-old Emily Waterman. Someone grabbed her hair in one gloved hand, picked up a fistful of snow in the other, and scrubbed her face with it. A girl shrieked with laughter. When Harper blinked away the snow, Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones was crouched before her. He looked at her with a blank-eyed incredulity, a cheap plastic mask. He, no, she, it was a girl behind that mask, held out a hand, palm up. A flat white stone rested in it. Eat it, came the voice from behind the mask. Eat it, bitch. Make her eat it, another girl in another mask said. They were all masked. Eat it, eat it, eat it, girls chanted. Harper was on her side in the snow, one arm covering the ripe swell of her belly, the other arm trapped under her body. The girl holding her hair yanked. Then she yanked harder. Harper opened her mouth and held it open like a child letting a doctor look at her tonsils. Tyrion Lannister forced in the stone, a cool, flat weight. There was a sound like someone ripping a bedsheet in half. The hand clutching her hair yanked, pulling Harper's chin up, forcing her head back. Another hand slapped her in the mouth, hard. A thumb moved back and forth, pressing the strip of duct tape flat across her lips. Half an hour said the girl who had her by the hair. It stays in for half an hour. Now get up, get on your knees. Harper was lifted onto her knees. The girls pulled her arms behind her and there was another ripping sound while one of them tore off a fresh length of duct tape and bound her wrists together. Maybe, Harper said, meaning be careful of the baby. She had no idea if anyone understood her. Two girls danced together, holding hands, twisting and spinning each other. One wore an Obama mask, the other a Donald Trump face. Flashlights played across the pines, a swarm of bright gold lights. Harper had to look again before she realized none of the girls were holding flashlights. It was the girls themselves, leaping about, laughing, kicking snow at her. They were lit up like in church when they sang together. They shone for each other, their dragon scale throbbing, intense enough to cast a brightness from under their jackets, up around their open collars. So, there were other ways to enter the exalted state of the bright then. A chorus or a firing squad, either would serve to satisfy the scale. Harper heard the snickersnack of scissors. Her gold hair began to fall in the snow. (laughs) Ha ha, ha ha, said the smallest of her attackers, the girl she was sure was Emily Waterman. Cut it off! Cut it all off! Her voice was a drunken bray. The wind sighed reluctantly, like a lover who realizes it's time to go. Her hair fell around her while the scissors went snickety-snack. The girl who had been clipping her hair said, Isn't it sexy, the way the scissors sound? She opened and closed them next to Harper's ear. Gives me shivers. I like cutting your hair so much, I'm sorry there's not more of it. I'm sorry I have to stop. Maybe next time I'll cut something else. You need to decide if you're with us or against us, if you're going to shine with us or not shine at all. You want my medical advice, nurse? I prescribe a change in your attitude." Harper thought there was a chance that soon one of them would haul back and kick her belly like a football, just for the fun of it. They didn't know what they were doing anymore. Maybe they had already gone much further than they had intended. Maybe they had just meant to pelt her with snowballs and run. They had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten their own names, the voices of their mothers, the faces of their fathers. She thought it was very possible they would kill her here in the snow without meaning to, use that pair of scissors to open her throat. When you were in the bright, everything felt good. Everything felt right. You didn't walk. You danced, the world pulsed with secret song, and you were the star of your own Technicolor musical. The blood leaping from her carotid artery would be as beautiful to them as a sparkler throwing a burning red shower of phosphorus. The girls who had been standing behind her all this time pushed her onto her side in the snow. A bubble of some powerful, dangerous emotion quivered inside her and Harper remained very still so it would not burst. She did not want to find out what it was, whether it was grief, terror, or worst of all, surrender. Each of the girls took turns dancing up to her and kicking snow in her face and Harper closed her eyes. The girls stood over her, whispering. Harper couldn't bear to look at them to see that circle of masked faces gathered around her. They talked on and on in soft, hissing, unintelligible voices. Harper shivered violently. Her jeans were soaked, and her wrists hurt, and her face was raw and burnt from all the snow that had been thrown in it. At last, she opened her eyes at a squint. The whispering continued, but the girls were gone. The only thing talking was the wind shushing the pines. She wriggled and twisted her wrists. The tape was on her gloves, not her skin, and in a while she was able to squirm one hand free. Harper pulled off the other glove and tossed them both aside, still stuck together with duct tape. She did not hesitate, did not give herself time to think, but found the edge of the duct tape over her mouth and ripped it off. She tore away some of her upper lip with it. Harper spat the stone into the snow. It was pink with blood. She got so lightheaded when she stood up, She had to put a hand against a pine to steady herself. She made her way from trunk to trunk like a wobbly toddler taking her first steps and using the furniture to steady herself. She found the turning to the waterfront and started down the hill. The thought was in her to get to the fireman, tell him what had happened to her, what was happening to camp. Maybe, even now, it was not too late to pull things back on course, to make Camp Wyndham well again. She got perhaps 12 steps when someone called out to her. Nurse Willows, Nelson Heinrich shouted. Where are you going? The path to the infirmary is up here. He stood on the boards with Jamie Close. Jamie was dressed in the same clothes she had been wearing the last time Harper saw her, the blaze orange snow pants and the puffy slate colored parka. The only thing different was that she had taken off the Tyrian Lannister mask. That snow is up to your neck. Why don't you come back here before you're buried alive?" Nelson's face was scrubbed red from the cold, and he grinned to show his two front teeth. Harper's breath steamed. When she licked her upper lip, she tasted blood. It took her almost five minutes to trudge the 20 steps back to the boards, wading waist-deep in the snow, powder getting inside her boots. Jamie and I were just off to relieve the lookouts at Mother Carol's. Good thing we showed up when we did. You were all turned around. He reached out with both hands to help her up onto the planks. Nelson frowned, but his eyes were gay with amusement. But look at all these tracks. We have rules, you know. No stepping off the paths. What if a hunter wandered by and saw all the tracks you've made? By God, if we were discovered, they'd ship us all off to Concord. If they didn't just shoot us here. Wandering puts the whole camp in peril. Mr. Patchett and Mother Carol have been very clear about that. One hour with a stone should remind you of your responsibilities. Jamie Close stepped around him, holding out a white stone in her palm. She grinned to show a chipped tooth. Harper took the rock and obediently put it in her mouth. I wish I could say that um, good things happen to Harper afterwards, but actually it only gets worse from there.
0: Everybody! Oh, come on! Hello, everybody! <laughs> this is the night we're getting the sneak preview. This is the night before Joe Hill's new book comes out here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a town pretty much laid bare in your book.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the town is all over the book. North Church is in the book. Uh, I burned uh, Portsmouth Hospital to the ground. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, much of the book takes place in South Street Cemetery, um, which is the size, it is a graveyard the size of a small village. It's just an, incredible. If you've never been there, you know it's worth taking a walk, but plan for most of the afternoon because there's a lot to explore.
0: We get all these local landmarks, and, you know, it sort of reminded me, and bad things happen in this small town of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Yeah. As you so- heard from that, you know, the violence among teenagers, neighbors against neighbors, couples against each other, men and women against each other. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Ig Parish in, yeah. in Horns, you know, the, the town demonizes him. Do you have something against small towns in New Hampshire, Joe Hill?
1: Uh, no, um... No, but I write what I, you know, I write what I know in the sense of I feel like I can make stuff up. I can write a story about a ghost or a vampire or a devil or a runaway pathogen that causes people to spontaneously combust. I can sell a crazy, fantastic idea, but I need to ground it in something that I know intimately, and I know life in New England. I I know what the roads are like, Uh, I know what jobs are like here, I know what the weather is like. Uh, I have a sense for how people live their day-to-day lives. I remember years ago I was invited to write a story about Van Helsing for a collection, and for me the hardest part of writing that story was figuring out how I'd get Van Helsing to New England. Because I couldn't, leave him, I couldn't leave him there in old England. I would have had him running around in the fog saying, God save the queen or some, something dreadful like that. So um, so this is, this is what I know and how I know to ground a story.
0: And Dragon Scale, tell us more about it. One of the characters calls it the most sexy pathogen ever. How, how fully formed was it in your mind when you started writing this book?
1: you know I when when I came out here earlier I said thanks to a bunch of people one person I forgot to thank who is here tonight is my mother Tabitha King um, a terrific American novelist and uh, my mother is an amateur mycologist and she knows a lot about spores and fungal infection and mushrooms and you know she's um, she, she goes out in the woods and she picks mushrooms and she brings them back and she cooks them in an omelette and she hasn't killed anyone yet. Um, and and so, so in the firemen, we have this, this runaway pathogen, this spore called dragon scale, and it gets on you and it's very beautiful. It looks like a delicate tattoo, uh, black lines with gold speckling in it, and, and much like your necklace. And, um, and it's beautiful, but when you stress out, when you feel anxiety, you start to smoke, and if you can't control your fear, you burst into flames and you die of spontaneous combustion. And, um, and the, the crazy thing is, as improbable as it sounds, most of what the dragon scale can do can actually be found somewhere in mycology. Uh, almost every single aspect of it exists to one degree or another. Um, and that was a very conscious choice to do something that was grounded in science after writing several supernatural novels that were completely about the fantastic. And for my research, I just I mind my I mind my mother.
0: Well, Harper Willows Grayson, who is the school nurse, yeah. who is the, the protagonist of this novel mostly, um, she uses Mary Poppins as a role model. She's plucky, she's very smart. But she knows, you know, you, you give her a history, you give her a sense of being a woman in the contemporary world. For instance, she realizes that she hasn't really much liked the men that she's had sex with in her yeah. life. But sort of like in Nosferatu, Vic McQueen, you know, it's a really strong female protagonist. And I'm wondering how you got that female protagonist gene, You're probably your mother again?
1: Well, you know, uh, my mother comes from a large family and has many sisters, and I did grow up, you know, uh, for me, what was terrific was sitting under the dining room table when I was seven or eight, and uh, my my mother is from the spruce family, and um, when the spruces got a couple glasses of wine in them, um, and uh, slipped into some fairly salty talk about politics and, and Maine and work and uh, relationships. That was always really exciting to listen to as a little kid. You know, you felt like you were getting the real deal. Um, and and uh, so yeah, so some of that is, I think some of that is directly a result of coming from the Spruce family, which is really, was always really a matriarchy, going all the way back to, uh, you know, um, Sarah Jane, my grandmother who passed away a couple years ago. Uh, you know, as a, as a side note, um, every time I see a Trump rally on TV, I think about a thing that my grandmother, Sarah Jane, said um, that always stuck with me. She said, It's one thing to be ignorant, and it's another thing to be proud of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm thinking, we were talking about this earlier today with my um, producers, we were saying that this isn't really a post-apocalyptic novel, it's like a mid-apocalyptic novel, you're kind of in the apocalypse, and it's interesting that women are often the protagonists in those kind of novels, What what does that mean, why do you think that you gravitated toward that for this?
1: Well, I don't know, I don't know so much um, I don't know if I even agree with the question because certainly some stories like *The Road*, which is post-apocalyptic, is kind of a manly mm-hmm. man story. It's like, I mean, were there? I don't know if there was um, a single female in the whole book. It was just kind of guys rooting around in the wreckage of the world, snuffling at each other. Um, my, if there's a lot of female characters in the Firemen, that's partially a reaction to the superhero movies that have been out just lately, which I love. I'm a comic book guy. I'm a, you know, for me, my big professional breakthrough was when I got to do an 11-page Spider-Man story about 10 years ago, and I felt like, wow, I, I finally made it. Um, you know, and I love all these, these. there's been this whole rash of tremendous superhero films going up to all the way the recent one, Captain America Civil War, but but they do have their flaws, and, and one of them is the utter lack of female characters. There's this single f- female superhero, right? Black Widow, and Black Widow, she's like the only woman in the whole thing, and she has to be everyone's love interest, and she has to represent every woman um, in the world, and that that's just untenable. That just doesn't make a character. So I did look at The Fireman as this big science fiction science fiction action kind of superhero story because the fireman is kind of a superhero. He's sort of 50% the human torch, 50% Charlie McGee from Firestarter. <laughs> but the but the secret of the book is that almost all the big roles are played by women. It's the, the title itself is a bait and switch. Um, it's called The Fireman, but it's really Harper's story. It's her foot on the gas pedal. It's her decisions that make the action happen. And she's surrounded by a lot of interesting female characters. Her closest ally is Renee Gilmanton. She contends with a frenemy, a teenage girl named Allie, who is kind of punk rock. And maybe the most sinister character in the book is Mother Carol, who is this uh, neurotic paranoid who rules over Camp Wyndham with an iron grip.
0: Um, Since you brought it up, we do have a question. Team Captain America or Team Iron Man?
1: Oh, I think... I think... I, I mean, Captain America in my heart but in my head, Iron Man, I mean, I'm <laughs> like cheating. I'm taking it both ways. I mean, the thing is, is Iron Man sort of represents a certain democratic ideal, the idea that nations can work together to solve problems. He's like, you know, there's going to be an international accord signed by 127 nations to limit the use of superpowers. And as as a card, you know, I've got my woman card in my wallet. I'm a total Hillary guy, and I believe in that kind of, you know, uh, thing. Um, where nations work together and we do, like, treaties and stuff. I think that's great. But in the film, of course, I'm a a total Captain America guy, (laughs) you know.
0: Well, you give us a lot of pop culture references in the book, like uh, Glenn Beck immolates on television. Oh, poor Glenn. J.K. Rowling is executed Uh, publicly for helping out the infected. She
1: faces, she faces, she's helped the infected, secretly used her wealth and her influence to help many of the infected, and then she's rounded up and in front of the firearm squad, she refuses to apologize for a single adverb.
0: <laughs> George Clooney burns on a do utter mission.
1: That hit my mom hard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't easy for me to take either. One character was also um, characterized as a Trump voter. You mentioned Trump in mm-hmm. the,
1: uh, wearing the mask.
0: Things so, didn't so, work
1: out so well for him now that I think about it.
0: So what, what are you doing here, placing us in the now?
1: Um, you know, all science, it is a science fiction novel, uh, uh, and all science fiction novels are not really about the future. They're always about what's happening now. It doesn't matter if the story is set in, you know, the 25th century. It's always, uh, the good ones are always about us here now. Um, and, and in the same way I write about New England, you know, we're all swimming swim in the pop culture. Uh, you know, it's, it's the... Um, um, the bread and butter of our lives and apocalyptic scenarios I mean we've all we've had this we've had walking dead on TV for six years we've had the road uh, we've had all the you know dawn of the dead and I think it's it's impossible to write an apocalyptic story without reflecting upon the stories and the stuff that's around us I mean I'd add you know someone said the most unrealistic thing about any zombie movie at this point is the idea that people wouldn't know what the zombies were you know, that they wouldn't have a plan. We've had so much of them, would be like, oh, it's it's happening, okay.
0: (laughs) You also have um, a a talk, a very powerful talk radio host who's sort of stirring things up. Yeah, there's a
1: morning shock jock, maybe right-wing type guy who uh, comes in the story, um, and uh, his name is the Marlboro Man, and he's sort of the voice of America's bro dudes, uh, and... um, um, you know, uh, he's, a, he's a fairly nasty piece of work, but he was also sort of ugly fun to write about. You know, this is a guy who's probably the great experience of his life was like seeing Ted Nugent in concert.
0: <laughs> well, tell me about that, the ugly fun of writing these nasty characters. What, what kind of headspace
1: do you have to be in, or do you just they just come? Um, you know, uh, I always try to bring a sense of humor to it. Um, no matter how bad they are, I, you know, I always, uh, I always try to find some way to have fun with them. Um, uh, maybe to get over sort of the bleak nature of the acts they decide to do. The Marlboro Man heads a crew, a cremation crew, when they're cruising New England looking for people who are infected. Because one thing they know is if you shoot someone who's infected, they won't spontaneously combust and they won't burn down your neighborhood. So there's not much incentive to treat the sick with mercy. Uh, That actually speaks to a larger issue I wanted to explore in the story. Um, You know, I love Walking Dead, I love zombie apocalypse stories, but what are these stories really about? These stories are about not wanting the infected near you, about people who are different than you and seeing them as the enemy. It would be better if we could build a wall to keep them out or if we could somehow ban all of those people from coming to the nation. I'm just speaking generally. I don't have any specific <laughs> political platform in mind. But, but The Walking Dead is really about like, ooh, they're infected. It would be better if they just died. I don't want them to touch me. And as much as I love those stories, I would prefer to write a story that takes up for the sick, um, where the heroes are the people who are contaminated. Um, and I also think that's more exciting because they're the underdogs.
0: Well, it is amazing that you sort of, I don't know, put everybody in this kind of pressure cooker, right? You know, in, yeah. this, in this universe where, um, as one character says, you know, how do you punish somebody who's already on death row? You know, how do you create yeah. a society when everybody's afraid?
1: Well, one, one, of, the th- one of the things about apocalypse and apocalyp- apocalyptic fiction, you know, sort of a, speaking to that point of this, you know, everyone's carrying a death sentence on their skin. Um, apocalyptic fiction is very hot right now, no pun intended. Um, But that's not actually all that new. Uh, There have been a lot of apocalypse stories uh, going back to I Am Legend by Richard Matheson and War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells and the Book of Revelation. Um, And so we've been imagining the end for a long time. And I think that's because, um, you know, William Gibson said this thing about how the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And I think it's also true that the apocalypse is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Um, everyone will face a personal apocalypse at some point because you'll die. And then that will be the end of the world for you. Um, and, and sooner or later, every generation that has walked on Earth uh, will be completely wiped out and completely gone. And that will be the apocalypse for them. This is getting really cheery, right, guys? Uh, um, but so so when, when we write a story about the end of the world, it's a fun, sort of playful way to explore what actually happens, which is that people have their lives, generations have their historical moment, and then the slate is wiped clean and we go on.
0: Well, we also get to see sort of flip sides of community, right? Yeah. That, that community in some ways at Camp Wyndham is a thing that connects people, it's a thing that yeah. protects people. But you... You also point out that you have bonding over extermination crews going out and killing people at the same time. Cool. So, so what are you what are you working out there?
1: Right, and Camp Wyndham is also at first when Harper arrives there, it's a good place where people sing together and they share and there's empathy and and it's fun and it's this very supportive environment. But as the pressure builds around them uh... as some as some key figures fall by the wayside um, it becomes a paranoid toxic place uh... where no one is really safe and everyone is afraid and i think i think i was thinking about social media in a lot of ways uh... you know i had uh, i got on twitter very early and for years i had this wonderful experience there where it was and i'm still there and i still tweet all the time i think it can be very useful Um, There are lots of good things about about Twitter or Facebook or other forms of social connection in the online world. There's community. There's laughs. uh, There's the chance to share these delicious moments like geeking out over the new Star Wars film. But then there's the other side of social media. Um, You know, you have a community. Of friends where you're sharing good stuff but then there's other communities like a community of people that gets off on harassing women online and they'll find some woman who dared to have an opinion and then they'll circle and pile on and it's sort of gross and creepy Um, there's the practice of online shaming which is very popular and you know the truth is there, if you want to be outraged, there is a lot of things to be outraged about in the world. There are a lot of people who are begging to be shamed. Um, but, but for myself, I don't like the way that makes me feel. I don't really want to be part of a group piling on, even if someone is begging for it. Um, and, and I also don't want to spend all day being outraged. And so the constant bubble of outrage online, I don't think is terribly healthy. Um, so I I did want to explore the way community can um, build a person up and can just as easily tear a person down.
0: Well you did mention and that's something that a lot of people may know that you are the son of the novelist Tabitha King. Yes. Um, It's a good thing I mean I know for a long time you hid that so it's a good thing you look so much like your dad because nobody would guess that you're Tabitha King's um, daughter, son rather. Um, But a couple of people are asking about your family life here. um, And I I read your brother Owen said that like, when you were eight years old and playing, you would have to leave to go write for two hours a day. Was he exaggerating?
1: I did start writing at a very young age. (laughs) I I don't know if it was eight, but maybe when I was 12. You know, I would come home from school, and my dad would be in his office clattering away at his word processor. And my mom had this... um, this tomato-colored electric typewriter that always seemed to be on the edge of having a seizure. It would (laughs) rattle furiously, and she'd be in there making something up. And so by the time I was 12, I just kind of thought that's what you did, is you spent an hour or two by yourself, and you made stuff up, and sooner or later, someone would pay you lots of money for it. (laughs) Which turned out to be true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So... By the time your voice changed, you'd already gotten your, like, 10,000 hours as a writer and You probably.
1: know, I, I, I sometimes talk about the four novels that I wrote um, that I was never able to publish while I was sort of building my craft. and, and um, um, Actually, it was more like eight novels, because I wrote four in high school. Um, and I didn't rewrite anything, because I didn't know you were supposed to do that. I didn't know there was, like, a second draft. I just thought it came out. It was perfect. You got a check, and that was, it. Was, you were done. <laughs> On to the next thing. Um, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, it was definitely something I really cared about at a young age. What I really wanted to do was I subscribed to this, you know, I had friends who, like, subscribed to Sports Illustrated because they love sports. And I had friends who subscribed to Rolling Stone because they loved rock. I subscribed to this gross magazine called Fangoria. <laughs> And and Fangoria was, like, dedicated to, like, slasher movies and the gross-out special effects of Tom Savini and Rob Botton. That's kind of what I wanted to do, was I wanted to learn how to make these great, gross-out effects um, that would make people sort of recoil and go, ah! And in a way, that dream also came true.
0: <laughs> so what was it like? I mean, what were what were bedtime stories like in The King Family?
1: Uh, Jay Leno had this joke that I've I've never forgotten where he said... Stephen King says to the kids, come on, kids, it's time for a bedtime story, and the kids all go, no! <laughs> no! Um, the bedtime stories were great, you know? My dad was... My dad... No one tells better bedtime stories than my dad, and, and he knew what we liked, which was superheroes, Spider-Man, and he would always tell... It, they weren't scary stories, but they were horrifying. There's a difference. He would tell these Spider-Man stories, and, and he knew... Humiliation was worse than death. So, like, like Spider-Man would be, you know, fighting Doc Ock, but he'd he'd also have diarrhea. <laughs> and and mid-fight, he'd get punched in the stomach and his bowels would let go, and his the whole back of his suit would balloon out with this horrifying squish. And and as kids, you just wanted to melt at the horror of it. You just felt like. This is, nothing has ever happened to Spider-Man <laughs> to even begin to compete with the, the horror of this moment. Um, so, so did he
0: encourage you to make up stories, too? I mean, were you part of the...
1: Yeah, absolutely. It? And, you know, it, it's, the dinnertime conversation was always literary conversation. We were always talking about the books we read, characters we liked, uh, bookstores, publishing. It sounds very 19th century But after dinner, instead of watching TV, we would go into the living room together and pass a book around and read to each other. Um, And that's how I first read uh, The Chronicles of Narnia and uh, how I read some of the early work of H.P. Lovecraft and um, Lawrence Block, a great American crime writer. And that was all stuff we discovered together as a family. Mm
0: -hmm. But you did go to great lengths to conceal your pedigree, let's put it that way. Um, Changing your name to Joe Hill. Um, well, my
1: name is already Joe Hill. It's, it's Joe Hillstrom. It's, it's, it's Joseph Hillstrom King, and I decided to publish as Joe Hill instead of picking up. I considered some pen names, um, but in the end I thought, well, Joe Hill makes the most sense because it would be easy to cash the checks.
0: So, so why? I mean, why right. did that matter to you so much?
1: So I'm a pretty insecure guy, and when I was 18, 19, I began to worry about publishing as Joseph King because I had a fear that... Uh, it, would, it would invite a publisher to, to accept mediocre work and publish it because they saw a chance to make a quick buck in the last name. And I didn't want that and I, I needed to know when I sold a story that I, I sold it for the right reasons because it was really good and an editor loved it and wanted to go forward with it. So I dropped the last name and I was able to keep my identity a secret for about a decade. And that was long enough to collect a lot of rejection letters, and, and also publish some short stories, and and build my craft. And I had my big breakthrough with Spider Man, where I did my 11 page Spider Man story. Spider Man did not get diarrhea, um, which just goes to show that I'm like a quarter of the writer my dad is. <laughs> you know, I missed a golden opportunity, um, but. Um, so yeah. when
0: the cat was let out of the bag, however, yeah. you know, you, you you've been for some time established as your own writer. I mean your fans come to you as Joe Hill fans, and you're a New York Times bestselling writer, and um, do you ever get that urge to throw that identity all away and begin anew? I mean, do you feel at all constrained by being Joe Hill? Oh,
1: not at all, no. I mean, not, not even a little. You know, um, I, I still think that to a degree the pen name works, that, that even now a lot of people know, but a lot of people don't know. It's ridiculous to think people sit at home Googling me. You know, most people don't care. <laughs> And they'll wander into a bookstore with a few minutes to kill, you know, maybe they're there to buy a Mother's Day gift or something, and they decide to get a little something-something for themselves, and they'll see Nosferatu, or Heart-Shaped Box, and pick it up and say, oh, this looks good, and go home and read it and have a good time, and then they Google me. Um, and I always feel like, oh, it's great. I, it's great when I got a reader who didn't know. It's okay when I got a reader who didn't know. Um, you know, I hope that, the, that they enjoy the books. But it's still sort of satisfying when I capture another reader who is, you know, um, unwitting.
0: Well, still, you know, coming into your own obviously has not been easy. I, I read about after the heart-shaped box that you went through a really tough time. Yeah. You got divorced. You, yeah. have, uh, you had a breakdown, which you've since talked yeah. about publicly. How did, how did you know when you needed help?
1: Um. So I did have, I mean, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, one of these depressing cliches, you know? It's like uh, someone has a big success and gets all their daydreams and then everything falls apart. And I hate cliché. Like that's just, you, you learn to avoid that when as a writer. Um, I, have, I have a line in the book where I say uh, about a, one character that Ben Patchett loves cliches so much that he leaves no stone unturned. Um, but... Um, Uh, I did have this kind of collapse, uh, you know, um, after Heart Shaped Box came out. And I couldn't seem to get, I felt felt very depressed. And I had always struggled with a certain degree of paranoia. um, But never, it was always manageable. It always stayed in his his box. And this time it kind of exploded from the box. And it was very hard to control. Um, I remember when I went on tour for Horns, which was a very, very hard book to write. Um, you know, I mean, there's. I hate when a rock star is like, "I don't know how one can dance to that song." I was in so much pain when I wrote it, you know. And you're like, "Oh my God, dude, get over yourself," <laughs> you know. But it's hard. It's. I feel like Horns is a really, really good book, and that people have fun with it. But it's hard for me to look at that book because I was such an unhappy person when I wrote it, and I remember going on tour for it, and I'd be on at the events. But after the events, I'd be tearing apart my hotel room looking for fiber optic cameras because I was convinced someone was spying on me. And um, I have three boys, three wonderful, amazing boys. And at a certain point, after I got done with the Horns tour, um, I thought you need to see someone, and had been encouraged by my father. Um, you know, my dad was the one person I could talk to. I'd call him every night with my latest set of paranoid fascinations. Mm. He's very patient about listening to it, but. It one point he said you know Joe it might help to have someone professional to talk to about some of these ideas I had had anxious thoughts and paranoid thoughts earlier. I had resisted the idea of talking to a therapist or a doctor about it. I didn't want to get on a medicine, on a pill, because I was afraid it would cut my creativity.
0: Yeah, where you we kind of have that yeah. cultural thrall, right? That, you know, the crazy artist, that's what right. drives you.
1: It, it turned out that actually being um, a paranoid asshat. Uh, was cutting into my creativity, um, and that and that getting on the pill and getting the therapy made it easier to write. Um, so, but it didn't matter if it made it. It didn't matter if I ever wrote again. At a certain point, I had three boys, and I realized I needed to be sane and balanced for them.
0: Here's a question from the audience. Nearly sure. every author will admit to experiencing writer's block from time to time. Do you have any sure method that you use to stave off the block and get the juices flowing again?
1: I think, I think writer's block uh, is a very artificial condition. And usually what it comes down to is your subconscious presents you with subjects you want to explore. And you have decided you're not going to explore that subject. Um, your subconscious wants you to write about masturbation. And you're like, oh my God, I'm not going to write that story about masturbation. What if my mom reads it? <laughs> and, so, and so you say, I'm not going to write that. I'm going to write some other story. But then that story won't come because your subconscious has decided to take its, its baseball and go home. It's like, we're either writing what I want or we're not writing anything at all. And so you have to get over it and you have to, you have to write the wanking story. And the truth, is, the truth is, is, your mom already knew. She already knew all about it. She's not going to be stunned. She'll be glad you're finally addressing it.
0: Well in the novel, Harper's husband Jacob is a would-be novelist. Yes. Um, he refuses to let her read his great His masterpiece. Novel. Can we say the name? Yeah. Desolation's Plough.
1: Desolation's Plough. <laughs> Sounds like that one will tear the best of all this <laughs> up.
0: And when she when she finds it and actually she reads it, she realizes that like at one point, I can't go any further and still love this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Because she sees his contempt and his grandiosity and sort of, you know, imagining how great he'd be on NPR.
1: Yes. Is, that, is that what every writer really the, does? I think, I think if you want to have the ideal villain for your book, you know, find some self-centered, narcissistic writer who dreams of being on the stage at the music hall, <laughs> being interviewed for, for NPR, and you've nailed it. You've got someone everyone can justifiably hate.
0: Well, she also thinks like, that's what writers do, they just imagine the perfect woman and, the woman, and they make her up into a character.
1: Is that, yeah. is that what they do? Well, that's one of the things I wanted to rip in the book. You know, she says, uh, you know, um, real women are unsatisfying and so novelists have to go and invent a woman, um, the woman they'd actually like to be with. And, and uh, that was sort of a place to poke at the way women are traditionally used in fiction and, and in thrillers. And hopefully, I managed to avoid those traps with this book. But you—you you never know. I guess readers will tell me.
0: No, I think it's safe to say you have um, a, audience, someone in the audience. Actually, Jacob writes with an outline. Um, oh. I've heard you write without an outline. Yes. Do you do any pre-writing, setting notes, characters,
1: etc.? I think that outlines are the tools of the devil. <laughs> At another point in the story, someone says uh, that any, car- any writer who writes by outline should be burned at the stake, with his outline and his comment cards, his character cards, as the kindling in the, in the fire. Um, uh, I, but whatever method works for you. Don't, I'm not judging. You know, I I I don't outline, but I. I do write my first drafts longhand, I have these seven giant notebooks that, that's the fireman, you know, this huge stack. And I work that way because when I write longhand, when I write the story in first draft, that's a sketch of the novel to come. Um, I'm still exploring my ideas, I'm trying all kinds of scenes that might not make it into the finished novel, and I'm just trying to get it, I'm trying to capture an energy um, I'm trying to find sort of where the big pieces of, the big blocks of the story belong. And then and then I'll figure out in second and third draft how to make it pretty.
0: Well, your dialogue is so good. You, you mentioned Renee Gilminton, who's her, her best friend. She's a woman in her 40s, African-American. And then there's this other character who is as white bread, salt of the earth Yankee as you can yeah, possibly Don get. Lowiston. Don Lewiston. Don yeah. Lewiston. So how do you do dialogue? Are you sort of playing it out in your head? Do you?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I think... It takes me about three years to write a book, and I'm trying to get faster, and I think I am getting faster, but I, I you know, it takes me about, so far it's taken me about three years to write a novel. And I always think the first 18 months is a matter of finding the characters' voices. So I'm really just working on the first third of the book for the first 18 months. Um, and, and I'm playing all these scenes that almost inevitably don't make it into the finished novel. But just so I can get the characters talking to each other and seeing how they think and how they, how they solve puzzles and what they do when they're in a tight spot. Then, then the rest of the book, I'm usually able to write in about six months because by then I know how the, who the characters are, mm-hmm. how they talk to each other, how they think about themselves and the world. And whenever I place them in a situation, it's easy to see what they would do. And so then I just follow them
0: so, when an idea is germinating for you, you know, since you have written short stories, graphic yeah. novels, novels, how do you figure out which which format to use? I was thinking, sort of, Dragon Scale would look beautiful in a in graphic a novel book. or a comic yeah. book.
1: Um, uh, how do I figure out which form I'm writing in? Um, well, it's a novel if it gets to be too long to be a short story. <laughs> so, when I get to page fifty, it's starting to look like a novel. <laughs> Um, and and it's a comic book uh, if it seems to me if I'm seeing the story in panels sometimes I'll be working on a story and I will just naturally see it in panels. The, the comic book I spent the most time on I spent six years writing a comic book called Lock and Key. Um, thanks. Um, that started so I did this Spider-Man story for Marvel and that started as a pitch for Marvel Comics because I wanted to do more And Marvel turned it down, DC turned it down, some other people turned it down, and some other pitches. I had this one pitch uh, called Baby Hulk because I just had a toddler. And I always thought toddlers would be sweet and stuff and that they would be fun and, but boy, they get mad. They get so angry. (laughs) And you know, my toddler picked up a plastic truck and was and threw it. And I thought, what if it was a real truck? And so I, I wrote this pitch for Baby Hulk, and I guess Marvel thought that was messed up, and they're like, no. <laughs> um, but so I had, this, I had this idea for a story about a house uh, filled with magic keys, and every key would unlock a different door and activate a different supernatural power. And even after the idea had been turned around, you know, I'd be out driving at 11 in the evening to go buy diapers, because that seems like it was always when we ran out of diapers, you know, and I would just have an idea for a new key. And I think, that's cool. And that idea started as a comic book thing. So I always saw it in terms of panels. I hope
0: that answers Emily's question. How do you approach, well, maybe it doesn't. How do you approach writing a graphic novel differently than a prose novel?
1: I think about, I I figure out what artist I'm working with. And usually it's one of my closest friends, Gabriel Rodriguez, uh, who was my co-collaborator on Lock and Key.
0: Bravo.
1: Yeah, clap. You know, my terror, so I'm up here, so you wonder what, you know, a guy who writes scary stuff is scared of. Here's what I'm scared of, okay, just a little segue. You know, so I'm sitting up here and I think, what if I say something that I think is cool and no one claps, and I, <laughs> and I turn into Jeb, and I'm like. <laughs> please, please clap. <laughs> you know, that's what you just, and then I can never have that moment back. <laughs> It'll be, like, on YouTube and stuff, and, you know, ugh. Um, what was the question? Um, what were we talking about? <laughs>
0: please clap. I was going to ask what you remembered about the Bush campaign. Yeah. Um, so you've covered that. Well, it, it was. Up? It was. How do you approach writing a graphic novel differently? How did I get to but, the okay, please
1: thing? What? Oh, I, I, Gabriel. Know. I know. I know. Right. Gabriel Rodriguez, amazing artist, and, and... Um,
0: Wait, can, can I add this? Anything in the works with Gabriel Rodriguez? Isn't yes. a question? Yep. Okay. okay so right. So, that
1: so, um, so when I'm writing a comic script, what I think about is what would Gabe love to draw. Mm. So when I'm tackling any sequence, I'm always thinking about what would be the most fun and or the hardest thing for him to draw here. <laughs> the harder the better, you know. And, and um, he is doing so. I did. I did. <clears throat> in the 1980s, there was a TV show called Tales from the Dark Side, and. Great, it was My Generation's Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, great show. I was hired to relaunch it for CBS. And, and then they wrote me this big check. and I was like, I'm like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. And I, I got, I was sweating because I've never done a screenplay. I'm like, oh, oh wow, they're gonna really, I'm gonna have to blow it out of the water. They, they're gonna want awesome. Um, you know, and so instead of writing one script, I wrote three scripts and I wrote a Bible for the first three seasons and, and Tales, my reboot of Tales from the Dark Side went on, it's now entering its second hit season in my imagination. Um, <laughs> in real life, CBS decided not to produce it. They filmed the first episode, it tested great, everyone loved it, and they didn't do it. Um, but my comic publisher, IDW, said, if you don't want it, we do. And they, took, they got the rights to the screenplays, and they got Gabriel Rodriguez to draw them, and so now people are going to get a taste of what the TV show would have been because we're going to do Tales from the Dark Side as a comic.
0: Whoa! Okay, what can you tell us about the Lock and
1: Key television show? I'm working on a pilot episode right now.
0: Woohoo. hoo Okay. Uh, let's see. You know, I was thinking about working with Gabriel Rodriguez. You're, that's a very collaborative kind of thing. So what was it like to go from that to, I would say, the relatively solitary life of a novelist?
1: Yeah. You know, the thing about, the thing about writing novels or short stories is it's lonely, isolating work. Um, I actually can't see the audience because the light is in my face and that's how I like it. You know, that I I feel so comfortable when I'm essentially almost alone. I mean, you're here, but you know. so so the thing which is great about comic books is you have this band it's like being in the stones you know you've got you know Gabe was like Keith Richards um only better looking and not like all weird <laughs> um and and you know I felt like I was the drummer and the colorist is like the keyboard guy and and it was so much fun it was almost too much fun um because it's fun and it's easy and strangely, that's kind of an argument not to do too much in comics. Um, you know, writing novels and short stories is hard and uh, frustrating, but I think that that's the work that develops you and and I wanna keep those those skills sharp as well. And when you finish a novel or a short story, that is, there's a unique satisfaction in that.
0: Well, in this novel, um even Mary Poppins singing A Spoonful of Sugar becomes <laughs> somehow tinged. It becomes with creepified. Sinister, yeah. <laughs> and and I was, uh, just like in Nosferatu, you know, the Christmas land, the amusement park, becomes Long, creepi-
1: creepified. Lon had this great quote where he said, there's nothing funny about a clown at midnight. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but is that your aim to poison our, our cheery views with something darker?
1: Uh I always think the juxtaposition of something sweet and innocent like an ice cream truck uh <laughs> you know or christmas uh you know um um in the when you place it in with if you if you juxtapose that with something terrible there's a there's a frisson there which creates chills which creates fear um and and I did play around with so harper loves the 50, the musicals of the 1950s and the 1960s. And um, she's really, she's this tremendously happy, optimistic, good-humored person. Um, and she's the kind of person who probably sings too loud in the shower. And, and it was sort of satisfying to have this plague pouring across the nation, destroying everything, which becomes the, the unstoppable force crashing into the immovable object of Harper's optimism. Mm. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. But yeah, she does She does sort of wish that the world was more like a 1950s Disney musical. And weirdly, she then wanders to Camp Wyndham, where people keep the dragon scale suppressed by singing together. And so she sort of finds her way into this sort of nightmare musical land. Um, to... to create the character, I did watch a number of very old Disney musicals, which is proof that I'll suffer anything for you people.
0: She's also, she's a person who gives unflinchingly. I mean, she doesn't even yeah. think about it. Even to her enemies, she's like, if someone's hurt, I'm going to help yeah. them. But there's this really interesting moral dilemma that she has in the book, right? That she, she's pregnant. Yeah. She realizes that she's walking around carrying this boar and carrying this baby. Um, I think she says it's something like, it's, it's like a loaded gun that a kid could find. I mean, she could kill yeah. somebody with that. Yeah. It is such an interesting thing that she's, you know, she's doing this not for the self, but for the future. So, so have you written the, the hopeful
1: apocalyptic book? It's more like it is really the sunny look at the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was how I viewed it, was, I did think, you know, I, I read Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which I, I, I love, and I love Cormac McCarthy, and, I mean, he's ten times the writer that I am, um, but there's this scene in The Road where these degenerates are, are frying a baby on a spit over a campfire, and and I know it's the most horrifying scene in the book, but isn't it also sort of funny? Is it wrong to think that? You know, because it's so bad, it's so awful. And one of the things I wanted to say in the book, I wanted to show some people who have a sense of humor and a sense of empathy and, and a basic core sense of decency. I believe that humor and empathy are not luxuries that we would cast aside um, when times get tough and then we'd be animals chewing each other's throats out for the last can of spam you know i think that i think that humanity is humans are affectionate little monkeys and that we have to love and root for each other and you know when the towers fell uh, there were people running up the staircase to see who else they could help if if you don't show humanity's decency it's hard to see why anyone would care if we survived the apocalypse you know if we're really as you know if we're going to be down Roasting babies on a spit over a campfire—maybe it's time for the cockroaches to have their turn. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Well, we get a couple of lessons about surviving the apocalypse. One is one of which is stock up on cigarettes, not yes. gold. That's actually the currency. Um, but also, there's a point when Renee uh, she reads to the kids in the camp, right. and um, she decides, you know, read something short. You don't want to start Game of Thrones when you're about to catch fire. Yeah. So. So what do you want to be reading Joe Hill when the world ends?
1: I don't. I don't. I want to be done with the book when the world ends. <laughs> you know, I don't want to die in the middle of a story because then I won't know how it comes out. I mean, this is one of the things Renee bemoans in... in um, in the book that the apocalypse is very tough on narrative junkies because you know when your life ends you're always in the middle of someone's story either your own or your children's or your grandchildren's or you know and it's it's very tough not to get to the last page but no one does um there was someone someone asked me like what are your survival tips in case of the last days and i thought man i don't think i'd last very long (laughs) I'd just hole up in my basement and read as much as I could until the slow mutants found me and pulled me out, carved me up for my entrails.
0: <laughs> it's such a cheery way to end this evening, Joe. Yes, it is. But I do have some people to thank, because this is a tremendous production that they put together here at the Music Hall. Writers on a New England Stage's executive producer is Patricia Lynch. The Music Hall producer, Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president, Betsy Gardella. NHPR's broadcast producer tonight is Taylor Quimby. Our digital producer is Sarah Plord. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer is Ian Martin. The musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And there's live stage photography from this event from Clear Eye Photo that'll be posted in just a couple of days. Ladies and gentlemen, please clap for Joe
1: Hill. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much.